Um, so when I grew up, it was pretty safe. Um, there was a lot of kids um, in the neighborhood. So we would play outside as soon as it was daylight and you wouldn't come in until you heard your mom holler for dinner. And then you would go back outside and play until she hollered and it was bedtime. So it was a lot of fun growing up. Welcome to Stories from the Heartland, a podcast that shares the stories of older folks from the often mythologized middle of the country to challenge misconceptions and expand the understanding of the Midwestern past. My name is Elle, and I'll be hosting this episode of Stories from the Heartland. Today, we'll be taking a trip through the childhoods of four women from different backgrounds who grew up in the 60s through the 90s. We'll explore some of the best aspects of their childhoods in the Midwest, including lots of physical space to play and family support that helped them navigate their way through various Midwestern landscapes. But we'll also examine darker moments of growing up in a region that included many homogenous communities where difference was sometimes not well tolerated. Sadly, we'll find that the close-knit neighborhoods and wide-open spaces of the Midwestern past didn't always feel safe for everyone who grew up there, and that family support couldn't always protect children from damaging influences, especially racism. But let's start with the good. Let's join Kendra and Kathy as they fondly reminisce on their childhood experiences in two distinctively Midwestern landscapes, a suburb of Indianapolis and a small town near Lake Michigan, respectively. I was born November 2nd, 1973 in Indianapolis. I was actually born in the car on the way to the hospital in the front seat of a Vega station wagon. And the one thing that when you were entering the city limits from any direction, there was a little sign that it said, welcome to Coloma, population 1,901. And I grew up looking at that sign. It was really nice to grow up in Coloma. I grew up on a dirt road. You know, it was across the highway from Lake Michigan, but you know, it was really nice to grow up. I grew up playing in the woods, building forts, you know, staying outside from first thing in the morning till the streetlights came on. In lots of ways, both Kendra and Kathy had what many people think of as the typical Midwestern childhood. They described family camping trips and playing outside all day with siblings and friends, skinned knees, sunburns, and a little bit of mischief defined their early years. All my like best memories are just family time camping. Um, there was one time when we were camping, because I guess we were a little obnoxious sometimes. Uh, we had squirt guns and it had gotten dark and we would ride our bicycles through the campground and we had these, these squirt guns and we would squirt people who didn't want to be squirted. And one time this uh, convertible, I think it must have been a Corvette or something, came through the campground and we squirted the guy. And he took off after us and we like pedaled our little legs as fast as they could go back to our little site, like slid under the campers to hide from him. He was so mad. I don't remember if he had words with my dad or not, but that was kind of a funny one because we did get in trouble for that. Thank God there were not cell phones with cameras and video when I was growing up, because there were a lot of things that we probably did with, you know, water sports or our dirt bikes that were not, not safe by any means. Um, I actually flipped my three-wheeler once um, 
so hard that it knocked the wind out of me. Um, I hurt my back. We were actually camping in Kentucky and I couldn't breathe. And my sister is like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I couldn't even talk. And she's trying to, to hit me to get my breath back in my chest, you know, pat me really hard. I couldn't hardly move. And we didn't go to the doctor then. I mean, you had to be like a limb hanging off or bleeding to death to go to the emergency room or to a doctor, especially out of state. But I remember my back hurt so bad. We had to, we had to go out in the boat that day that I had to ride in the very back of the boat and was almost in tears because my back hurt so bad. And I don't know what I did to it, but that was a terrible thing. But we did things that, I mean, we used to ride in the back of the truck. We used to ride in the camper while it was going down the road, which is illegal. Um, but we would sit back there, we had a good time. So much fun. Um, well, I'll tell you this, my, my parents had five kids in less than seven years. And so we grew up, grew up at, at, like a pack. And my parents were, um, my mom and her sister married my dad and his brother. They had six kids and we had five. So it was really a pack of 11 kids. Well, my favorite memories of growing up in Coloma is even though it was across um, maybe a couple of blocks across the highway from the, the beach. We were right by Lake Michigan. Growing up, you know, within a five minute walk to the lake, that was the best. We went over there all the time. We went to, you know, we could go and walk on the lake. We could go swimming. Um, we had friends that actually, you know, lived on the other side, like on the bluff overlooking the lake. And those were great mm -hmm. friends to have. And, you know, we had people didn't, weren't as um, transient as they are now. You know, if you, when you lived in a town, you grew up in that town, you know, so we knew that we went to school with the same people pretty much. I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed growing up in, in a town where I knew pretty much everybody. Strong family bonds clearly shaped the childhoods of Kendra and Kathy. Kendra grew up in a middle-class family and enjoyed close relationships with both of her parents. So when I was a little girl, my mom always liked to dance. She used to go to the clubs because back then you just went to like dance halls and things like that. It wasn't like now people go to the club to hook up or whatever. So they, she always would did a lot of dancing. Um, like in her teenage years, she would dance and all of that. So I remember as a little girl, because I have no rhythm whatsoever, my mom trying to teach me how to dance when I was just a little girl in the kitchen or whatever. Um, she really liked Elvis. So she had like Elvis complete set. Um, so she would play that kind of music. And then uh, my dad always liked big band and he likes musicals. So some of that music I remember. Um, and then we grew up camping and boating a lot. So he would always blare like um, bluegrass on the boat in the eight track and it would just echo around um, the lake. Kendra's dad worked a lot, but when he wasn't working, she knew she could find him in the garage. If he was in the garage, I was out there helping, helping him. And he would have to watch because I would be on the other side of whatever motorcycle or lawnmower he was working on and I would take it apart on the other side. 
So we would have to watch and make sure that I was on the same side of him because I knew how to use all those tools because I watched him. But he would always, I mean, we rode dirt bikes together. So we rode motorcycles around the yard. Um, when it snowed, we pulled each other with sleds around the yard. He would take us out to his friend's farm and we would ride around because he had a lot of property. It was a lot of fun doing that. Kathy's parents were blue collar workers and they belonged to unions, which impacted Kathy's childhood quite a bit. Um, my mom was a recording secretary and I think my dad was for his union also. And when I was about 12 years old, we actually got a two week scholarship for, uh, my mom did for her and all of her kids. And we went away and I learned all about the union. Like the kids, it was drilled into us, you know, about the union. And um, I don't think that was an experience that most kids had growing up. Another big influence in Kathy's life was her Native American heritage. I get my nativeness from my father. His mother um, was full-blooded Pokagon pot. Well, back then it wasn't Pokagon band. I'm not sure how, when that, the name of it came up, but she was full-blooded Potawatomi. And we grew up from the moment I was cognizant of anything, I knew I was, I was, I had Native heritage. Kathy spent a lot of time with her father in the woods. One thing they did together was hunt for morel mushrooms, a type of edible fungi that is indigenous to Coloma and the surrounding rural areas. The mushrooms are symbolic of the incorporation of Kathy's Native American heritage into her identity. Native lore has the Potawatomi tribe, as well as other Native tribes within the area, hunting and eating morel mushrooms and other indigenous fungi for ages. You know, my dad was a hunter and a fisherman and anything that he uh, caught or, or killed, we ate. It was, you know, it, it was, it, he didn't, it, nothing was for sport. It was for food or, and other parts of it, you know? But we'd go hunting morels and yes, we ate, we ate them too. <laughs> when it came to claiming her native heritage outside of her family, such as in conversation with friends and other children in grade school, Kathy fortunately faced very little discrimination. She describes the comments that did occur as friendly teasing. It was never anything that I thought that they were, uh, that was derogatory. I just thought, oh, it was just one thing, you know, it was something they could tease me about, like something, somebody else would have something else. Kathy's native heritage has become more and more important to her as she has gotten older and settled into a career as an artist. She draws inspiration from nature, honoring the Midwestern landscapes of her childhood in many of her pottery pieces. Kendra has also incorporated her childhood into her adult life, as she tells us that she has tried to give her kids the same childhood she was so lucky to experience. Our next interviewee, Sandy, is biracial and grew up in a very unique situation in rural Indiana. She was born in the late 70s to a white mother who had fallen on hard times, and as a result was placed with a foster family as a newborn. Eventually, she was adopted by this same family, an all-white family living in an all-white community. Sandy gives us a look into her own Midwestern childhood from two perspectives, one of a child from an affluent white family, and one of a young black girl, unsure of her place in the world. As an adult, Sandy has had several conversations with her birth mother, in one of them, she asked why her birth mother didn't keep her. She went on to also ask why her mother's parents didn't want to keep her. She also explained the process that led to her adoption and what it was like being black in a white family. 
and she said that um, she was in trouble. And I said, well, why didn't my grandparents, my biological grandparents keep me? And she told me that I thought they just didn't want me because I was a black baby. They were like, I don't want to deal with that. And um, she said they were actually afraid that, that she would come back and take me and then go on the run again with me. So they felt it was best that I go to um, foster parents. And then I guess my parents were looking for to foster a child and they um, got me and she told me something I didn't know. She told me that my dad had came to the prison when she was at prison. And um, she said, it wasn't like in the visitation room. She said it was in an office. And she said, he said, you know, we want to adopt her. And if not, they're going to move her to another foster home, which, you know, because I guess foster homes maybe are temporary. And I'm not sure if that was true. I don't see the, the guy was head of that. Maybe he just said that, you know, so she would finally sign off on me. And she finally did. Definitely like, I don't think we, you know, it wasn't a conversation of, anything really about black people or black culture, black food, but it wasn't none of that. They didn't, it wasn't something that just never they talked about with me. And that's unfortunate. It's not like they didn't treat me any different or anything like that. My family is accepting of me. Maybe I think they just thought of me as their own and that just wasn't something that was important to them. It definitely would have been better for me um, to ha have them have talked to me and made me understand and maybe been around more Black people definitely growing up. In general, Sandy's family employed colorblindness, believing that not acknowledging race was the best way to fight racism. This was a popular way of dealing with race in the latter part of the 20th century, but she recalls that her race was very apparent to her and her family, especially her mom, in at least one way. Definitely with my hair. You know, like, it's like, you know, their hair, like, one of the swimming pool, my hair is like, I had an afro for so long. And I think that I felt diff, I really felt different because I was, it wasn't like them. They can't go swimming, brush their hair back. Their hair would look fine. My hair would look crazy. And I think that was harder for me to understand, like, why am I not like them? Why can't I have this curly hair, this pretty straight hair, this, this, and that? And my family never really tried to do anything with my hair until, like, I think great. So I'm like, well, something's really not right. You know, it's not like my friends, um, I was lucky enough to be in the popular group, I think, for a long time, you know, the eighth grade and stuff like that. So it's not like they really made fun of me or anything, but I knew, like, oh, well, I'm a little bit different. <laughs> she didn't know what the hell to do with it. And then everybody at school was calling me Prince. This was like, and I was like, oh, I was so embarrassed. To someone who is not a person of color, this could just seem like the same kind of friendly teasing that Kathy described as occurring in her childhood. But there is a history behind the unwillingness of white people to learn about black hair. For centuries, Black women have used expensive products and undergone painful procedures to conform to white standards of beauty. For Sandy, having hair that was clearly different from that of her parents and siblings, and sensing that this was a problem, made Sandy feel alienated. Being made fun of for the hairstyle that resulted from her mom not knowing what to do with her hair was humiliating. However, comments like these would not be the last that would make Sandy feel like an outsider at school and in her community. She also highlighted several other encounters growing up that would add to these feelings of isolation. She also mentioned feeling like she needed to conform to the stereotype of the cool black girl that saturated the media in the 80s and 90s in order to have friends at school. My friends, they had boyfriends. I wanted a boyfriend, but that wasn't happening. I think one time I dated, um, was going with some guy and we were dating and with his mom or parents found out he was dating me, like he had to break up with me because I was black. Yeah, definitely growing up, like, I thought that 
I um, should be good at sports. And I was horrible. Like I should be able to run fast. And then I ran track and I came in last. And I remember I was just like, I, I was just like thinking, okay, there's a black kid in this white team. She at least got to run fast or she has to be good at sports. Cause me and my thinking at the time, like, you know, black people are good at sports. They're tough. And I think that, yeah, I was, probably tough and mouthy and 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 I tried to be like that because okay that's what I think of black people at that time in my life not necessarily now but when I was younger yeah yeah I didn't know I mean I went around any black people just basically what I saw on tv or something like that as a teenager Sandy sometimes went to a more diverse neighboring town to hang out with black kids there after high school, she left the Midwest and very deliberately sought out black peer groups in order to learn more about her racial identity. But she reports that she has never quite felt fully accepted in the black community, not as a teen and not now. I think I, uh, it's our, for me, it's kind of harder to get accepted with some black people, especially in high school. And it, it sometimes it seems like for me, it's easier for me to be accepted by white people because a lot of things I grew up and I like and I do and everything is the same thing that they like I mean with, with having black friends and being around black people later in high school you know um I was you know high yellow or you're not black enough or you're not this this and that when she became a mother Sandy didn't want her own son to feel as alone as she sometimes felt as a child in her all-white home community She's tried to place him in schools where he would experience diversity and, especially, be around others who would help him to understand his own race, just as Sandy continues to learn as an adult. And then once he went to junior high, he, there was Black, Spanish, and all different types. I wanted him to experience all different types of friends, all different types of ethnicities. And he has had, like, a Nigerian friend, Puerto Rican friend, Colombian friend, probably Cuban friend. He has like friends like from everywhere. And I think that is so cool because that's not something I grew up around. We didn't grow up around Spanish people or Mexicans or, you know, Puerto Ricans, none of that. And he sees everything he says and he tries different type of foods and he just knows so much compared to what I knew as a child. And I, I, I like that. It's just, it sucked. It just really kind of sucked not and being around black people and feeling like I'm way different than the black people also, because I didn't know what some things they're talking about, you know, and they're, I don't know anything about, you know? So I think once my, I got with my husband, you know, I learned more about black culture, you know, what the heck soul food is. I never even heard that. I swear to you, like growing up. And that's like the big thing. In all, Sandy is grateful for the childhood she had. She knows that she benefited from living in a stable home, and she enjoyed many of the same aspects of Midwestern childhood that Kendra and Kathy have mentioned, roaming the woods and maintaining close relationships with family. But she also recognizes that the landscape in which she was raised limited her understanding of herself and her Black identity, and sometimes made her feel isolated and ashamed. Sandy wasn't the only one to experience the negative side effects of growing up in the Midwest, sometimes known for its reluctance to embrace difference. Our next interviewee, Sharon, grew up in a mid-sized city in the middle of Indiana. Like our first three interviewees, Sharon remembers playing outside and having the support of her mother in difficult moments. But she reports that she also suffered the effects of racism. However, as a white woman, she tells us that the racism directed at her was about her choice in friends and dating, not her own skin color. While her childhood and Sandy's childhood have similarities, it is important to note that racism affected them in different ways. So I was born in Anderson, Indiana, and I was born in the 70s. 
So back then it was pretty segregated. We had um, three different high schools. You had Highland, Anderson, and Madison Heights. And pretty much the west side of Anderson went to Anderson High School, which was um, predominantly African-American. And then Highland and uh, Madison Heights was more Caucasian. Highland was more of the upper society and, um, and or Madison Heights was more of the middle class Caucasians. So it was pretty segregated. We were, um, even as a child, my best friend was African-American and she always came over and stayed all night. Like, I didn't know that there was anything different or anything wrong. I was raised in a home where there was, we were raised to treat everyone else the same. Um, and that was just how we were raised. And I can remember one time as a kid, um, a, and I was very young, maybe six or eight, and I can remember a boy in our neighborhood, you know, back then everybody played outdoors together and he used the N word and my mom, I mean, just ripped me and had me come inside and then she ripped him by the arm and took him home and told his mom what he said. And his mother spit in my mom's face because she called my mom an N lover because she didn't think that there was anything wrong with her sons using that word. So then we were told that we couldn't, you know, play with him anymore, which was fine. I knew something that he said was really bad, but I remember that was the first time I ever heard that word. And then I remember we all got sat down that day and we was told we were never allowed to say that word. Sharon's interactions with racism didn't end there. As she got older, the negative experiences escalated, leading to emotional damage and even physical harm. There was a group of girls that would say, don't serve her the white meat. She only eats dark meat and would try to take my lunch tray from me and would like um, spill things, the, you know, give her the chocolate milk, not the white milk and just make it just be very cruel. And the irony in that is, is it was a group of cheerleaders and specifically these five girls and three of those five girls all now have biracial kids. And they one time had, you know, had me, invited me over and, um, oh, said, come over, we're gonna have a sleepover. And my mom's like, I just don't think this is a good idea. And I'm like, no, mom, they invited me over. And I was like, no, they invited me over, we'll go. And so she loaded me up in the, in the Nova. We had a Nova back then. and. I was so excited to go and my mom, you know, back then you waited until you seen your kid go inside and they sat on the other side of the door and called me everything but my name and wouldn't let me in the house. So I did the walk of shame back to the car and tears just rolling down my face and those same girls, the three of the five girls now, they, they all have biracial kids now by multiple men. <laughs> that they were meaner than crap to me in high school and very racist. I never, I never understood it. If I see them, they, they, they've never apologized. I think they think just because we all have biracial kids that were in like a club or something, but they've never apologized. No, an uh, older white man in our neighborhood um, said that I disgusted him. And one day when I was walking home from school, he knocked my front tooth out in the alley he beat me up as she mentioned sharon has two biracial daughters 
She has raised them with her past in mind, trying to give them all of the possible advantages she can, from learning to do their hair from stylists in a Black-owned salon, to helping them fight their own battles with racism. It was very, it was, it was very um, stressful um, how to ethnically know how to take care of their hair. Um, and I was, I didn't have much pride to me. So I just went over to the African-American um, beauty shops and I would sit there and I would learn and I would ask a lot of questions. And they both have beautiful hair. They've got headfuls of hair. But I um, knew that I didn't know how to take care of their hair, that their hair was two different races. So I had to go ask questions. Like you just can't assume that you know what you're doing. And I learned a lot. Tori was... She played volleyball in high school and she, um, we had a huge problem in high school. She had a um, Caucasian coach that um, pulled her and two other um, biracial girls to the side and asked them what their problem was because they were half black and um, she thought that they were supposed to be able to jump better than that. Yeah. So I had a huge problem with that and I went into school and that turned into a big thing and she ended up saying some very racist things and she ended up losing her job. And so we made a lot, um, let's just put it this way, I sat alone the next two years at volleyball games because I made a lot of enemies by that lady losing her job. I don't know, You, I feel like her understanding her worth, even if she's biracial, or if she's Caucasian, or if she's Asian, whatever her race is, she, if she has to understand her worth. As Sharon weaves through life, she uses her childhood experiences to shape her parenting, working hard to ensure that her own children never go through what she had to. All of the women in today's episode remember carefree moments in their childhoods, times when they played in the outdoors from morning to night, they also remember the security of growing up in homes where they were loved and supported. In these ways, they affirm the widespread belief that the Midwest of the past was an ideal place to raise kids. But, as we listen to these four interviews, it becomes clear that some childhoods of the Midwestern past caused more than the skin knees and sunburns of playing in the woods, on the beach, or in idyllic neighborhoods. These stories reveal the dark underbelly of the Midwest one that is rotten with racism and prejudice that caused deeper injuries in the lives of many Midwestern children. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories from the Heartland, written and performed by Ball State students of the Midwestern Stories Project and produced by the university's digital core. Special thanks to Indiana Humanities, the Ball State Provost's Office, and our community partner, Minatresta, for supporting this project.